Hey friends, Nels here. Thanks for tuning in to the Journey Church Podcast. Today we're in a message series called Parables, where we're looking at how Jesus used small stories to teach big ideas. Let's tune in to see how these parables can impact our lives. We have the privilege of having Chris Townley here with us this morning. Uh, Chris is a Bozeman kid, uh, grew up here. He also played basketball at Bozeman High School and then went on to play basketball at Rocky. After that, he was our student ministries pastor for seven years uh, and was a, had a huge impact on my kids especially and uh, made a very big difference in their lives. And now, two years ago, you transitioned mm-hmm. to Phoenix because his wife started medical school down there and Bozeman doesn't have a medical school. And so... Uh, they transitioned down there. He's now one of the pastors at New City Church in Phoenix. So, Chris, thanks for being here. Give him a warm welcome. Thanks, Sam. Appreciate it. Well, good to see you guys. Uh, as Sam said, my name's Chris. Really glad to be here. Uh, thanks for having me down when it's 115 in Phoenix. That's, that's a good plan. Um, it just so happens I'm also holding a basketball so I was just, I was rummaging around in the back before the first service and it, yeah, Journey stole my basketball actually. It has my, it has my name on it. I've had it since I was 10 years old and have been looking for it for a few years now and, and I found it. So after this, I will literally be taking my ball and going home and yeah, that's why I have that just to let you know that. Um, good to, good to see some of you, uh, recognize a lot of you, have had meaningful life with a lot of you. If, we, if we've never met before, we could, we could hug it out after this too and be friends as well. Uh, because just something that I maybe wanted to say up front is, uh, I, and you know this, but like just how, how lucky you are to, to have this community of people, to have this staff who, who loves and cares for you and spurs all of you on to, to live out the gospel in this world. Obviously, many of them are, are my friends and they've had incredible impact on my life, but I would just love it if everyone appreciated and knew them the way I do. So just, just know you're in a, in a special place right now and you're a part of something special. And I'm honored to be here on this day, but enough mushy babbling. Uh, let's get to the preaching, all right? You're, you're in a series this summer and then you're moving through the parables and the, the parables are these stories that Jesus told. And it's, it's fitting that this is your series because one, I love Jesus, which is important to be this person doing that, but I also love stories. And in this case, I love parables. Um, the, this will surprise you, but we won't be um, learning about the parable of the prodigal son today. It's going to be a little different. Uh, before we dive, that's an, that's an inside joke from like three years ago. You know, like you can only use them every now and then. Uh, but I want to be on the same page with parables first. All right, why, why Jesus uses them, uh, how he uses them, what they, what they mean, what they look like, that sort of thing. And the first thing I want you to think about with a parable is that a parable is a wedge, right? Think of it as like a wedge, like a, a dividing thing. You, you try and stand here and if there's a wedge, you have to move. It pushes you off balance. And the reality of most of Jesus's parables is that we're la- left questioning at the end of them, um, like, do we understand? That, that's what we start asking ourselves because Jesus didn't tell these stories to simplify a concept. Otherwise, the disciples wouldn't have looked at him every time he told one and been like, what do you mean? 
right? Like that just happened every single time. He tells these stories, these parables to put a wedge into our lives and to move us off balance. And that then causes us to wrestle with ourselves and to wrestle with our view of God. And ultimately parables then just force us to work out for ourselves how we actually are going to view God and act on who God is. And so that, that really serves as a, a wedge, so to speak, for anyone, whether you follow Jesus or not, it pushes you to a place where you have to wrestle with the claims. And so our parable for today is actually no different. Uh, it will also drive a wedge into the place you're sitting in your life right now. Uh, we're gonna take a look at a popular parable. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, I believe it's on your notes pages. You can follow along on the screen. I, rumor has it, a couple people brought their Bibles, so you could open those up too, and it's in Luke 10 right there. I mean, I didn't even bring a Bible for that matter, so I don't know what I'm saying. All right, Luke 10, starting in verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there. But he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put this man on his donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you that we get to fill this room all of us from the different places in our life gathering together in one place. Pray that we would never take that for granted as we sing songs that, that praise you and who you are, as we hear about the life change that's happening around this church. And then as we get to open up your word and, and read more of, of what would communicate to us of who you are and what you're like and how you call us to live, I pray that we would uh, approach that text humbly this morning. I pray that we wouldn't let anything get in the way of, of what it is you might want to say to us specifically. I pray that you would speak to us specifically and corporately. 
I pray that you would give me your words, God, and that as your spirit moves, I wouldn't say anything that gets in the way of what you want to do. I pray that, I pray that everything I say would be for you and from you, would bring you glory and make much of you, God. That is why we're here. Thank you for loving us first. We love you, and in your name we pray. Amen. So inspired by Nadia Bowles-Weber, I came up with my 2016 version of this story. And it goes like this. A man was traveling on the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho when a group of bandits or racists or angry cops or terrorists attacked him with a suicide bomb or an assault rifle or by shooting him as he lay on the ground. And they left the man for dead outside the country's national celebration or on the floor of the gay nightclub or in his car next to his girlfriend or along the route of the protest march. And within minutes, the video of the attack is online. And minutes after that, myself and every person with an opinion has hurriedly typed up a response or a comment or a comment to a comment. And now our heads are down. And we're looking at our phones with a fake connection or we're shaking our fists or we're holding our gun or we're dazed with tear-stained eyes or simply disinterested in the video of another attack, another senseless act of violence. And now it turns out that I've passed the man in the ditch or the child being neglected or the family in despair or the lonely woman. And when you and I finally look up out of our own world with our callous hearts, it turns out we missed our chance to show mercy. But even harder still, the one who showed mercy to the proverbial person in the ditch is actually our enemy. The one we formulated opinions against, the one we believe we have the freedom to hate, that is the Good Samaritan. The one we thought that we could hate is the one who does good, who shows mercy and acts as God would act. And the wedge has now been placed just as Jesus intended it. But let's walk back in to the text and see what we find there in Luke 10 as Jesus tells this story. The first thing to keep in mind is that the good Samaritan did not mean what it meant to Jesus's original audience, what it means to you and I. Because we hear good Samaritan and we think of hospitals, we think of nonprofits, we think of being the good Samaritan, just the person who acts well and right in the public setting, who does what is Good, but if we really want to get to the heart of this parable and to what Jesus was saying, we have to understand it as Jesus's first original audience would have understood it. And to think of the Good Samaritan was to be to think of their enemy. It was an oxymoron for them. And so now we listen in with a little bit different mindset. We try to be Jesus's original audience. We try to imagine what it would be like to be in this space in 30 AD as Jesus tells this story. So let's step into that together. Here's how it starts. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, 
What should I do to inherit eternal life? And so here we meet our first character in our account, but an actual person who shows up, we have an expert in religious law or more commonly referred to as a lawyer. And so for Jesus's audience, they likely would have had a positive view of a lawyer or an expert in religious law. So already they're like, see the guy stand up. He knows what's up. He's a smart guy. He's respected. And they would have overlooked the fact that he was doing two things disrespectful. He was referring to Jesus's teacher, which was a bit more disrespectful than we think it to be now. And two, he was intentionally testing Jesus. That's not how you would have taught the respected teachers of that day. And throughout Luke's gospel, for that matter, he doesn't think highly of lawyers, so we kind of are in on that to begin with. Secondly, he asks this question, right? What should I do to inherit eternal life? Well, that happens to be the wrong question because one does not do anything to inherit eternal life. Eternal life is not a commodity that you can simply go and get and purchase or make happen. It's a gift freely given. And he would have already known this even when he asked the question. So how far off base is he? He's thinking in terms of a single action that he could just do one thing and that that would settle it, not asking about what it might look like to live an ongoing life of righteous living to live as God has called his people to live. So he asks that question. Here's how Jesus replies. What does the law of Moses say? Remember, this is an expert in religious law. My guess is he knows the answer. What does the law of Moses say and how do you read it? So he's now implying that the lawyer already knows the answer because the law of Moses certainly, certainly is about life in the present. It is about loving God and loving neighbor and that that's what you do. It was not a question about like, what's the thing that happens so that I might have eternal life. And when he says, well, how do you read it? He's implying that his reading of it for an expert is actually missing the point again. But the man answers, because he knows the answers. He knows how to say the answers. And he says this, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. This is often us, we know the answer, right? Like well, we've actually shared space at one time or another and we've reminded ourselves that if you're in a place like a church and you don't know the answer, you just say Jesus. Right, like that is the answer, yes. But what does it mean? What does it do? How does it change what we're about? And so now here we have this lawyer who knows the answer, but these love commandments that he can quote so well are commandments that he's neglecting as the foundation by which all other actions are assessed. And the lawyer knew this and he knew their context, but did he understand them? That's the question. And if we were to flip that mirror and look at ourselves, we ask ourselves the same thing. We know the answer, love God, love people. But do we understand? And so when he gives his answer, Jesus enthusiastically replies, right, do this and you will live. Right, to reiterate, Jesus is saying the point is to live now to act this out now, be about bringing my kingdom to earth now. 
The focus is not on some this life, but on the actual life now, because you know what that life is about. Jesus flips it around on the guy. And so then the man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, again, you have to just imagine the setting taking place. The guy's already being a bit disrespectful, right? He's, he's stood up, there's people around, and he's asked this question, and now he comes back with, and who is my neighbor? Which is really just a polite way of asking, who is not my neighbor? Right? Who isn't my neighbor? And so now we're on the cusp of Jesus's response, And it's important to note, right, that any time Jesus shares a parable with a specific person, when it's directed at a specific person like it is here, it's likely that that person will come to an unwelcomed realization. And sometimes that person is ourselves. Here's how Jesus replies. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. And at this point in the story, I think we tune in and we want to be like, okay, so who is this Jewish man? Well, he could be anyone. He could be rich or poor. He could be someone or everyone. But he is a person. And now Jesus' listeners would begin to identify with him as a victim the one who was beaten because they too likely would have known what it would be like to have been a victim. Maybe they didn't know it as personally in that moment, but for centuries before, their people had known exactly what it was like to be the victim, and so they would have saw him on the road and they would have known that is somebody like me. I know what it's like to be the victim. And it just so happens that this man who gets beat up, he's on his way down to Jericho. Right, and so anytime you're leaving Jerusalem, you're always going down, wherever it is. You could be 30,000 feet in the air, and you would say, I'm going up to Jerusalem. Right, like it was where the holy city was, where the temple was, and there was an actual 18-mile rocky path that led from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it descended some 2,000 feet. And so Jesus is doing a few things. He's playing with their history. He's playing with their reality. And then he comes in and he starts to empower their imaginations. And so now we find this man who was robbed, not only of his possessions, but of his dignity because he was stripped naked of his health and almost his life. And so the questions that Jesus' original listeners, if we were listening in and we were sitting there before Jesus as he's saying this, the thing that we would be asking now with a sense of hope is, will rescue come for the victim? Will rescue come for this man? And as we begin to relate to this victim, we start to also ask, will rescue come for me? Who will come for me? Jesus' story continues like this. By chance, a priest came along. And when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, that would have been a Levite, walked over and looked at him lying there. But he also passed by on the other side. Now, if you've heard this 
spoken on before, you've read about it, you, you know something about it. I don't have time to maybe debunk all of the misconstrued characteristics I think we assign to the priest and the Levite. But here, here's what we should know. If we were Jesus' original listeners, we wouldn't have thought it an issue of cleanliness that they did not stop by and meet this man who was left in the ditch. It wasn't that they had to be ceremonial clean. We've heard that a lot. Right? That like if they would go and look at the body or touch the body, then they would be unclean and then they, they could no longer go to the temple. Here, here's why we know that, or at least why I think we know that. Right? Luke doesn't say it, so it's not recorded. If he wanted to talk about cleanliness or being ceremonially unclean or clean, he would have said it. He actually says it other times in his gospel. So he probably would have said it. And the second thing is this, the man and the priest and the Levite were all going down to Jericho. They were leaving the city of Jerusalem where the place in which they had to be clean existed, right? And so there would have been time had you touched and helped a half dead body. There would have been time in Jericho to become clean again before you went back to Jerusalem and to the temple. So the, the act is really just all too ordinary these two people, the priest and the Levite, who would have known what they should have done was to care for the person they did what you and I all do all too often. They simply failed to do what they should have done. Martin Luther King Jr. offers the insight like this. He says that the first two who meet the man in the ditch on the road to Jericho ask this question. If I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But it's all setting up for the third man, the Samaritan, the enemy, who then asks, if I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And these two, the priest and the Levite, they act just like the lawyer. They are afraid and they are only thinking of themselves. And thus they miss the opportunity before them. It should challenge us to ask the same question. If I do not stop to help, what will happen to them, right? And you and I all can name the them to our us. We all have different thems. We all identify someone as them, 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 them. And we know who those thems are because we are us and they're not a part of us. We don't necessarily always shout that out or share that with people, but we know who they are. And so the question we wrestle with is then, if I didn't stop to help them, who will help them? That's tough. That's the wedge coming in. And at this point, the audience who's listening to Jesus tell this story, they would be surprised at the initial lack of compassion from the priest and the Levite because the way of Moses was to love God and love neighbor in all things and especially take care of those in deep need, those who are beaten and broken and perhaps lying dead on the side of the road. Their law would have even told them to bury the dead. That's like the number one gift you could give someone because they can't repay you. So they would have been completely surprised that this had not happened and so that they would now assume that the third person, because it's always setting up the third person, that the third person was going to be an Israelite, was going to be one of them and that that Israelite would then help. Now comes the wedge. Verse 33, then a despised Samaritan came along. And I don't know how many times I've read this 
parable and this story, and I've just breezed right by the word despised Samaritan. I thought he was good. The despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. How interesting, right? Like to feel compassion like this Samaritan person felt compassion means that he felt it in his guts. Right, like we know what that feels like to feel compassion in our guts. But the thing that's so interesting about his compassion in his guts is that it brings him to action in a way that signals he cares about making this man whole again. He cares about the person being restored. And it starts to speak to us looking in some 2,000 years later to the person telling this story in Jesus and how Jesus thinks. But to take it deeper before we even get to that place, We've got to understand that the original audience does not think of this Samaritan as we often think of the Samaritan as just some outsider or somebody who was oppressed and living in another place. They would have thought of them more as their enemy. And it's so likely that they might have even refused the aid of the Samaritan to let that, because they were now the victim and to let that be the person that cares for them. For Jesus' audience and the, the readers of Luke, the idea of a good Samaritan doesn't make any sense. It's the oxymoron. It's as if we called the person a good rapist or a good murderer. Jews and Samaritans were still at odds in the day of Jesus as they had been for centuries and centuries and centuries before. That tension still existed because each thought, get this, don't just eat, like the Jews and the Samaritans each thought that they had the claim on descending from Abraham or understanding Torah or the correct priesthood or where to worship. Can you imagine two groups who thought they had a claim on the titles and definitions of the world? I think we can. Verse 35. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. And so as Jesus' listeners hear this, right, the, the wedge has already been placed. You yourself probably feel it right now. I feel it right now, right? We're, we're not sure where this is going to land and what this might mean for us. And so the wedge has been placed and we're teetering on our access, uncomfortable, challenged, pushed outside of our comfort zone. And we're met with this, that the Samaritan does not just offer one-time aid, but he offers him long-term care. And this would just clang in the face of the lawyer who stood up and asked the question. He was looking for something to check off his to-do list. Can I just help a little here? Can I just save a little here, give a little here, check it off and be on my way? And Jesus, as he's spinning this thing on its head, says to love our neighbor requires continual action. And we know that and we get it. And I could have just stood up here and told you that and you'd have been like, yeah, I agree. But it's so much different when Jesus tells a story that puts the wedge in place and causes us to wobble. 
It's as if this parable communicates that it's not the motive, but that the action is what's most important. That's what's most important. And as this parable comes to an end, it turns out that Jesus is not done with the lawyer. Finishes his story and he says, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, now, now go and do the same. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. He could not even say his name. This is a theme in the parables that Luke tells. When the other is so other, we just can't acknowledge them. We can't even say their name. We describe them by their action. And then Jesus, he rephrases this entire commandment that is the commandment that everything's built on, right? To love God and love people. He rephrases it that certainly compassion can be felt in your gut, right? But mercy must be enacted with the body. You must do, you must move, you must touch. And as our wheels spin and the wedge drives deeper, we find that the Samaritan, right, the the hated enemy of Jesus' audience is the one who does what God does. What do we do with that? Right, loving God and loving our neighbor simply cannot exist as something abstract. We can't just come into this place and and acknowledge that, yes, love God, love people, love God, love people, and then leave and not let be the very thing that pervades everything that we do and everything that we're about. Love actually requires action. And again, we know this. If so, why is it so hard? So what about today? How do we exit the abstract and love in the present today. In the words of Amy Jill Levine, can we just finally agree that it is better to acknowledge the humanity and the potential to do good in the enemy rather than to choose death? Will we be able to care for our enemies who are also our neighbors? Will we be able to bind up their wounds rather than blow up their cities? And can we imagine that they might do the same for us? I know, I know, right? Like mercy and generosity make for a bad news cycle. They just do. The whole parable is one that does not focus on the violence or the destruction, but rather the incomprehensible mercy and generosity and kindness of the Samaritan. In this, in this story, right, of this merciful Samaritan, Jesus tells the truth about the seriousness of the attack from the bandits. He tells it really happened, and here's how it happened, and here's what happened. And he tells the truth about the inadequacy of how the priest and the Levite respond. Certainly that must be identified, but he does not stay there. He uses the majority of his words to paint this portrait of generosity and mercy as opposed to an assault on life. He flips the focus again. And so our options aren't to choose between ignoring the violence and the pain and the suffering as we insulate ourselves with privilege or just choosing to see nothing but the present darkness. Those don't have to be our options. Evil wins the news, but Jesus keeps winning the day. 
Again and again, Jesus keeps winning the day. And to look for the love and to look for the light and the mercy in the world around us is not the same thing as pretending that the evil isn't evil. It's saying that there's another way and that there's a better way in which we side with the suffering and we choose love because that's the only good news. That's the only news that really matters. Soon after the 9-11 terrorist attack, Stephen Gould wrote these words. He said, good and kind people outnumber all others by thousands to one. The tragedy of human history lies in the enormous potential for destruction and rare acts of evil, not in the high frequency of evil people. Complex systems can only be built step by step, whereas destruction requires but an instant. This is what I like to call the great asymmetry. Every spectacular incident of evil will be balanced by 10,000 acts of kindness, too often unnoted and invisible as just the ordinary efforts of a vast majority. We have a duty, almost a, a holy responsibility to record and honor the victorious weight of these innumerable little kindnesses when an unprecedented act of evil so threatens to distort our perception of ordinary human behavior. Like imagine if, if we, just, just us in this room, chose to sit in the suffering and we continued to name the evil forces of, of racism or gun violence or terrorism. And we even continued to acknowledge our complicitness in that at times, but we still lament. And as we sit in that place with the suffering, what if we weren't willing to concede more ground to Satan than he had already claimed? Like imagine if we weren't deceived into reversing the math and believing that evil has the numbers that evil wins in the end, because it doesn't. It doesn't win in the end. So what if little by little we instead choose mercy or we choose kindness, not because it makes sense. It really never makes sense. But because we can't help but respond to the mercy already shown to us by Jesus, the one who is even today placing a wedge in hopes of moving us toward action, toward love of him and all the very souls he has created, not abstract love, but active love. And we only do that though by the power of God at work within us. We cannot simply go and be that and just decide it. We must depend on the spirit of God at work in us. When we are weak, he is strong. That has to be the motto. We can't be afraid, though, of acknowledging that we are weak. And so this world, it's not a parable of assaulting bandits. That's not what describes this world. It's a parable of a merciful God dispelling the darkness. Believe that, follow that, go into that place and believe that the good news is really good and let it influence every little action and piece of living that you have left on this earth. Let's pray. God, as we let that settle on us, would you help us first reflect on the mercy you've shown us let us sit here for a moment and be reminded of your mercy.
And God, let us sit here and reflect on not only the mercy you've shown us, but on what it might mean for us to be as merciful as you, to go and do likewise. Give us space to empty ourselves of the things that we hold on to that keep us from surrendering fully to you, that keep us from depending fully on the loving power of your spirit. Let us sit with that for a moment. And God, let us sit and reflect and name the evil in the world around us and tell it to leave in the power of your name. Let us mourn and grieve in the places where there's destruction. Let us continue to identify all around us that life matters. Now, God, let us sit and reflect on all of those that we might have deemed as them or other or outside. And let us pause as we name them, perhaps as a people group, perhaps as the name of a person, perhaps as an idea. And as we name them, let us pray for them. So God, we pray this morning as one family united around your son, Jesus, the one thing that we can all agree on, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And God, as we cry out in your name and we pray, we also ask that you might fill each one of us with the boldness and the courage and the humility to see others as you see them. I pray that you would move us away from simply saying we know the answers, that we would simply say that we love you and we love our neighbor, but that we would go and do it, bring our love to action, Father. It will be hard. We will have to sit in places where there's suffering and pain. We know, God, but it is when we are weak that you are strong in us. We acknowledge that again. And we pray with every bit of us that we can muster that we would live out the love that you've already shown us in tangible, real ways. And there, there would be all these little places where our love and mercy and kindness might go unnoticed to the rest of the world, but it would not go unnoticed in the bigger picture, God. Thank you for loving us as we are, even in the places where we teeter on the wedge that moves us off balance, God. Meet us in that confusion. Meet us in that frustration. Meet us in that anger. Meet us in that disenchantment. 
And as you do bring us closer and closer to your heart, may our lives imitate and emulate the way in which your son Jesus lived. Let that be the thing that defines us as your church. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.